Welcome to All the Pharma. I'm your host, John Bazar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, and we are delighted and pleased and blessed to have Dr. Kaylee Marks join us. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist in leukemia uh, at a hospital in Texas. Kaylee, what's what's the hospital in Texas where you work? Uh, I'm at MD Anderson Cancer Center. MD Anderson, welcome, welcome. So, tell us a little bit about uh, you know your bio, real quick. So, where where's home? Where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. Um, I was born in New Jersey, so I'm a northern girl at heart. Uh, I talk fast. I've got big hair. I walk fast. Kind of all the quintessential northerner things. Uh, but then ended up down south um, with family. Went to pharmacy school at the University of Georgia and the College of Pharmacy there as well. And then kind of meandered my way a little bit more north to the University of Kentucky, where I did my PGY-1 and PGY-2 residency training. Um, and then I just wanted to keep on living the gypsy life. I moved out to Texas um, just for work. I wanted, I wanted to be at MD Anderson and work at MD Anderson. So I came out here and, and dragged my family with me. Okay. And you are a, uh, a leukemia specialist. Um, so, you know, I want to talk about, uh, and this happens a lot in our field. We get a lot of new drugs. <laughs> Um, but not all of those drugs, uh, you know, move up so quickly to the forefront uh, as venetoclax. So, you know, we're going to kind of do the foundations of Oncopharm here with venetoclax, but I feel like this has moved up uh, and become a really, really important drug in, in treating leukemias. I know that when you look at the, the publications of venetoclax, you know, there are lots of folks from MD Anderson. So I get the feeling that you guys, your institution was heavily involved in, in the you know, the phase two and the phase three studies for venetoclax. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, when people ask why we want to come to MD Anderson, you know, this is kind of one of those big reasons for me as I like being a part of the clinical trial aspect. So, you know, for every one drug that makes it, we are seeing, you know, probably 15 to 20 others that fail. But the cool thing about venetoclax is that we were participating in the phase one and phase twos when I started here. So, you know, when I refer to venetoclax in my head, I hear ABT199, um, kind of hear from the beginning. So it's, it's really, really cool, really rewarding to see kind of the progression from the very early phase um, studies and all of the intricacies and PKs that you have to deal with on those, on those clinical trials all the way up to now, you know, everyone's using it. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's out there. It's out there everywhere. So usually now is when I talk about the history of the drug, you know, what, tree the drug came from or what aquine or marine <laughs> you know organism or invertebrate we mm -hmm. got the drug but i really don't know where venetoclax uh came from if you go back in pubmed you, you don't have to go back very far to see the first mention not of neclax but of the the phone number that you just mentioned the the early name of venetoclax but it was approved uh, by the fda in 2016 so this is a drug that's been out there you know only around five years first in cll uh, then AML, uh, there's some, some dated mantle cell lymphoma and myeloma, especially translocational 1114. Um, and, and you mentioned this was in early studies when you started uh, your, your career at MD Anderson. Uh, do you have any other insights into the development or history of, of venetoclax, maybe how we got to the dosing schedules we got to? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting. It's probably its own podcast by itself, but I think you kind of, you hit the nail on the head a little bit as far as it not necessarily a perfect picture story. It's not as fun, so to speak, as the, the beginning stories of the Macinib, for instance. But we, we started using it kind of really early on in, in more of a traditional sense, looking into BCL2. It was kind of the, the perfect scenario of let's figure out why cancer cells 
behave the way that they do? Why are they able to evade apoptosis the way that they do? And looking into BCL2 specifically kind of started this investigation into all kinds of BCL2 type inhibitors. Um, multiple came before venetoclax, some of which are kind of coming back now. So nevitoclax to be one example. Um, but we settled at venetoclax mostly because it, of its specificity to BCL2. And then that the magic dose finding studies as far as what, what dose do we need, it was kind of more traditional in that sense. It wasn't, it wasn't a happy accident, I don't think. So what, you're getting into the pharmacology here. So it's a BCL2 inhibitor. And, and so tell us the importance of BCL2 and, and what that, what it does in, in normal cells and, and maybe what's different about BCL2 in, in leukemia cells. Yeah, of course. So, you know, theoretically in a normal cell, we have what we would consider kind of pro-apoptotic proteins and then anti-apoptotic proteins, kind of at their basic sense. So BCL2, I would call a, it would be called an anti-apoptotic protein. And it's one of kind of three major anti-apoptotic proteins, BCL2, MCL1, and BCLXL. And in a normal healthy cell, the pro-apoptotic proteins um, are more or less maintained in inactive states through binding by BCL2, kind of BCL2 binds these pro-apoptotic proteins and says, please don't kill the cell. Um, and then after cells undergo a stressor, a apoptotic signal is more or less turned on um, and the repression of these pro-apoptotic proteins are relieved by other types of proteins called like BH3 proteins, for instance. Um, and you're kind of releasing the brakes, so to speak, and the pro-apoptotic proteins are free to go kind of initiate cell death via a variety of mechanisms. Excellent. Uh, so, so BCL2 is in all cells, but we mostly see the activity of venetoclax in, uh, in hematologic malignancies. I know in, in my research, I found um, you know, a, a preclinical study in a breast cancer uh, cell line. Uh, and actually just this morning when I was looking at the ASCO abstracts, uh, I looked to see, is there anything out there about venetoclax? And there's, you know, there's quite a bit in the hematologic space, but there was, there's a, there's a study called Veronica uh, in metastatic breast cancer with venetoclax plus fulvestrin versus fulvestrin that looks like the venetoclax had a negative overall survival impact, uh, if I'm reading the abstract right, in breast cancer. So the, this drug seems to be, you know, it, it's use seems to be limited to hematologic malignancies. And, and one thing that's really exciting about venetoclax is if you think of the hallmarks of cancer, evading apoptosis is one of the hallmarks of cancer. And this is really the only drug we have that helps us target uh, that, that pathway that, that cancer cells use to, to, to be so, uh, skittish and get around our, our drugs we try to use. Yeah, no, I mean, it's entirely true. So in the leukemia space and some lymphoid malignancies, so CLL of course is going to be a big example here. Um, but other lymphoid diseases as well, like follicular lymphoma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, as well as in the myeloid space, what you actually see is that these cells so I'll go back to kind of referring specifically here to CLL and AML cells. Um, they, they have an excess of BCL2. And so this excess of BCL2 allows them to kind of survive despite what would be considered more endogenous and exogenous stress signals. Um, but that, you know, so while that helps these leukemias develop to some capacity or at least sustain themselves, I wouldn't say it helps them to develop, but sustain this kind of anti-apoptotic state, it actually sets them up for failure also. So these BCL2 cell, um, cells that are overexpressed 
um, we call them primed for death. Um, because essentially in these leukemia cells, this high level of BCL2, you also see high levels of BH3 and BH3 proteins. And these are kind of your more pro-apoptotic proteins. So a lot of the BCL2 is bound up by these BH3 proteins in cells. Um, these cells are also undergoing a lot of stressor signals, which release more BH3 in turn. So a lot of those like excess BCL2 cells are actually bound to, in AML and CLL specifically, we look at BIM. Um, and so they're bound up. So then when you want to kind of tip that ratio just ever so slightly by introducing venetoclax, which we would call a BH3 mimetic, so to speak, um, that really kind of tips the scales towards apoptosis. And so we kind of call, to kind of summarize all of that up, a lot of our leukemia cells are more or less primed for venetoclax success. And where you see venetoclax fail is in these environments where BCL2 may be upregulated or other anti-apoptotic proteins are upregulated like MCL1 or BCLXL but you don't see the excess of BIM um, or excess of other BH3 proteins. And then it, the venetoclax is not enough to kind of overcome um, that excess of anti-apoptotic proteins. And then to kind of just take that a step further, because I can't stop, I love pharmacology. <laughs> when you look at the AML space specifically, you're actually able to see a lot of great synergy data with some of the agents that we're already using. Um, so to use perhaps our hypomethylating agents as our quintessential example here, hypomethylating agents downregulate MCL1, which is another anti-apoptotic protein like BCL2, um, and induce expression of other BH3 proteins, NOXA and PUMA. And so essentially what that sets up is a dependence of the leukemia cells on the BCL2 itself. And so then you introduce venetoclax in addition to the hypomethylating agent, and it's even more primed. It's like they're addicted to the BCL2, you take it away, and then you have apoptosis. Excellent, excellent, nice. All right, so let's transition now into to some of the basics, what I call kind of the must-know information if you're taking care of patients uh, that would be taking venetoclax. So I'll start this kind of from a patient perspective. First thing I usually tell patients is how to take it. So how would you tell your patients to take their venetoclax? You need to take venetoclax with food. Um, specifically, we looked into kind of different PK data in the presence of low-fat and high-fat meals, and you see there's a significant increase in the absorption of venetoclax in the presence of food in general. So we generally tell our patients to take it within 30 minutes of a meal. Okay. So take it with food. helps with absorption. Does that help with, uh, you know, I, I know that there's some, some GI disturbances, some nausea, things like that. Does taking it with food help with that, or is it just purely for, to, uh, to optimize absorption? It's more or less to optimize absorption. That's how we've recommended the administration of the drug to occur kind of through all clinical trials. So what you're seeing on clinical trials on the back end is the toxicity data showing GI toxicities, for instance, as you mentioned, that's in the presence of already taking it with food. So if we were recommending not taking it with food, I mean, would those GI toxicities be higher possibly, but we don't actually have the data to support that since all of the trials recommend taking it with food. Okay. So let's move into some of the big toxicities here. You know, this is a drug that um, you know, when it first was introduced to, to humans, uh, worked really well, too well, uh, and saw a lot of tumor lysis syndrome. That was the big thing uh, that, that came out in the early CLL data. Uh, but I, I would say the dose limiting toxicity is really myelosuppression uh, now that we, we know how to prevent the tumor lysis syndrome. So, so tell us a bit about the myelosuppression. You know, how severe is this and, and how much of the myelosuppression is from the drug itself? versus from, you know, replacing an unhealthy marrow slowly with a healthy marrow by treating the underlying leukemia? It's pretty severe. Um, I would say that in large part, it is related to an on-target effect of the drug. 
um, specifically with neutropenia. You don't see myelosuppression in the form of thrombocytopenia as much with venetoclax specifically. You'll see that more with your um, kind of less specific BCL inhibitors. So nevitoclax is an example, which inhibits MCL1, BCLXL, and BCL2. You see some thrombocytopenia there. Um, and then with regards to the severity, it is quite severe. So looking officially at grade three, four, it's not considerably different compared to maybe HMAs alone in the AML space, but that's just because these patients historically already have that as an issue. Um, but if you look to kind of maybe a, a side effect of this myelosuppression and you look at the incidence of infections, you do see an increased rate of infection in AML patients specifically treated with venetoclax. Again, it's high regardless, but it is higher in patients on venetoclax. Okay. Uh, and we know the tumor lysis syndrome can happen. I, we'll touch on that in, I've got a couple scenarios to throw at you, some things that, that we've struggled with here in our practice that, that I'll pitch you. So we'll talk about the tumor lysis syndrome in a little bit. Um, any other toxicities we need to be aware of with venetoclax? I mean, I think we, we touched on the GI toxicities for sure. I'd say in the, in the non-heme space, if you remove infections, the GI toxicities is certainly the number one non-heme toxicity that you see. Um, and then I think we always have to consider the financial toxicity of these agents. This is new for us in the AML space, dealing with oral oncolytics and the, the cost burden being kind of given to the patient as opposed to perhaps the system when you think about intravenous therapies. Um, but that's certainly something to consider, especially as we kind of, I anticipate we'll talk about it, but any of these dose adjustments, um, you've got patients potentially paying multiple copays in order to take certain recommended dose adjustments of this drug. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So you mentioned that. Let's, so let's talk about that. So, you know, with the tumor lysis syndrome, there's the ramp up uh, that we have to deal with. And there's, you know, there's a starter pack. Um, so, um, you know, so uh, let's talk about this. Let's, we'll come back to that. So you mentioned the infections and that includes both bacterial and the risk of fungal infections, correct? Correct. So when we talk fungal infections, of course, we're talking uh, often about using azole antifungals. Uh, and there is a big, probably a major is the, the, the right adjective to use drug-drug interactions are azole antifungals with venetoclax. And I am so happy that, uh, that you all at MD Anderson have done very, very good PK studies with these azole antifungals. We have really good data on, on what to do and how to dose reduce, which we don't always have with, uh, with target oral agents that have been out for, for five years. So, so tell us really how severe are these drug interactions with venetoclax? Yeah, they're pretty severe. Um, I think so just looking at the raw PK data itself that you mentioned it, I mean, if you look at the raw CYP3A4 data, let's look at inducers. We know that rifampin, for instance, will decrease the AUC by about 40 plus percent, um, at least, if not more, closer to 70%. So it's pretty severe, though that's probably a less common interaction um, in our general space, um, with the major caveat being perhaps the future of AML therapy, including multiple targeted therapies at once, um, and subpopulations of AML who respond quite well to venetoclax being our IDH mutant patients. Um, some of our IDH inhibitors, the IDH1 inhibitor specifically is an inducer. So not something to go into in too much depth, but that could be a problem for us in the future. But if you look at the CYP3-4 inhibition, um, there's some really great data. Um, Dr. Agarwal, um, if you look at that data that's coming from AbbVie, has the majority of this published, but you look at the, the strong inhibitors and you look at posaconazole specifically um, being kind of the landmark azole that we want to use um, based on the Cornley data from New England in 2006. 
you'll see an increase in the CMAX by at least 50% and an increase in the AUC by at least 76%. Um, but those numbers will vary because what you'll see with NPK is that there's some level of non-linearity here, um, especially because there is a ramp up at the beginning. So if you're checking for these drug interactions on day three, it's going to be a significantly different level of effects than you might see all the way out on day 28, um, both because of the venetoclax itself and then, you know, basic PKPD, you start a 3A4 inhibitor, it's not going to inhibit those enzymes instantaneously, right? It's going to take some time. Um, and so when you adjust for that kind of non-linearity, you really see that POSA is estimated to increase the CMAX by about sevenfold and the AUC by about eightfold. So what that kind of resulted in is of course the label which recommends roughly a 75% dose reduction if you're giving it in the presence of a strong inhibitor, um, but potentially more so for posaconazole because it also inhibits PGP. Um, and so kind of what do you do with that information, right? Like you said, so what dose do we fall at and when do we adjust these doses and when do we start these azoles? Exactly. So, and I know that some of this, uh, you know, has been published and you guys have published uh, some stuff from MD Anderson. Uh, Caitlin Roush was the lead author on a paper that, that actually I found via Twitter from somebody from Spain retweeted uh, about, uh, you know, the, the risk of infection of these things um, when patients on venetoclax and azolone fungal. So let's just start with venetoclax 400 as say the, the dose you would use for, for along with a hypomethylene agent, kind of the standard dose. So venetoclax 200, what's the dose we should use if we're using fluconazole to, as, as prophylaxis or treatment? So that depends on the HMA. So I don't want to make this too specific, but if you look at the Viali-A trial, they're utilizing azacitidine, standard dosing, 75 milligrams per meter squared for seven days. Their recommended dose reduction then for fluco would be from 400 full dose to 200 because it's a moderate inhibitor. If you look at the data coming out of MD Anderson utilizing decitabine 10 days. And there's a lot of centers that that's their HMA standard is DAC-10. Um, the moderate inhibitors would also be a 50% reduction. Um, so you'd still, again, go down to 200. Where they differ is when you hit the strong inhibitors. So if you go to jump ahead, again, back reference the Viali-A trial, they took their own PK data and the existing PK data I referenced by Dr. Agarwal and said, we're going to drop for patients on strong inhibitors, the venetoclax dose to 50 milligrams, five zero. Whereas prior to the Viali study, at least we and the majority of our published data with the DAC-10 or other, we're using a rough 75% reduction. So you're looking at POSA 100. So it's almost gotten a little bit more gray since the Viali-A study came out because they're adjusting a little bit more aggressively. And I, I think that both doses perhaps are supported by the PK data, for sure. I think that in both instances, what you're actually getting when you're giving a 3A4 inhibitor with specifically POSA with the VEN is more overall exposure with 50 or 100. The question is just how much more. And so what it turns into is kind of how do you manage the myelosuppression later? Do you yes. reduce the duration of the VEN or try to keep it on forever. Yes, that's exactly one of the questions I wanted to ask you because the uh, <clears throat> the Bailey study uh, talks about, um, you know, they have specific dose reductions mentioned, but then they, th there's a so sort of a vague statement in that, that publication that prolongs, I think it's something like this, prolonged cytopenias were managed with either dose reduction, so like from 200 to 300 or 200 to 100, for example, or 
changing the duration of treatment instead of like 28 day cycles to 21 days out of a 28 day cycle. So how do you approach that? You've got a patient, you've given them Benaclax plus an HMA, uh, and they're just having prolonged cytopenias where you don't want to start, you know, your next cycle of your HMA. Do you dose reduce the venoclax, uh, you know, from 400 to 200 or, or even further, or do you shorten the duration of the venoclax treatment? Yeah, I think I'm not gonna be able to give a black and white answer. And I think that's just right. the reality of leukemia treatment today, right? Because the other question is, are they on an antifungal? Which antifungal are they on? If you look at the Viali tr trial, some 36% of the patients were on an azole and an additional 20% of patients were on, let's say, an echinocandin for antifungal prophylaxis. Um, but they didn't really delineate out were the incidence of dose reductions or cycle delays different if the patient was on an azole versus an echinocandin. You know that about half of the patients in the venetoclax group on that trial did have a dose reduction, either to 21-day duration of venetoclax or some sort of delay between cycles, or as you mentioned, kind of a dose reduction. So about half the patients didn't get what they quoted as their standard dose. If you look at the DAC-10 data, it was a little bit different because we're giving a little bit more of an HMA. So there was an a priori bone marrow at day 21. And if that bone marrow was empty or showed less than 5% blasts, you just up front, even cycle one, you're reducing that duration to 21 days. So I'd say, so my bias being at an institution which predominantly uses that 10-day HMA, at least during induction, we tend to decrease the duration of venetoclax before we decrease the dose further. But we're already decreasing the dose because at our center, almost all of our patients are on an azole antifungal. And I'll say off-protocol standard of care patients for our strong inhibitors, Bori and POSA, we're reducing to 100 milligrams. Um, and so at hundred milligrams, we're very comfortable with reducing to 21 or even 14 days per cycle of venetoclax. Whereas if you're at an institution, which is abiding more closely to the Viali-A data, or if you're using low dose ARC, um, that data supports the 50 milligram dose reduction. Um, perhaps their threshold for dose reduction even further would be a little bit higher than ours. They don't have much room to move there if they're already at 50. Yeah. So you guys have done both 21 and 14 day, uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Is there one that sent, that seems to be more favored or is it more patient specific? You know, if somebody is maybe a little older and frail, you, you err on the side of the 14 day. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, almost all of our patients are getting 21 days only during induction, even though, you know, we would say it's 28 days, but we're, if we're always getting a bone marrow on day 21, over 90% of those patients are either hypocellular or less than 5% blast at that day 21 marrow. So they're stopping at day 21. And then for subsequent cycles, if they pass the fitness test, they look great. They're not super old and frail, but by definition, if they're on this therapy, they're kind of old and frail anyway, right? Um, they might get 21 days, um, but I think the standard is, is maybe even just 14. Okay. So you, you've got a patient, newly diagnosed, elderly AML, not fit for intensive therapy. You're gonna do, you know, uh, hypomethylene agent plus venetoclax. Um, you know, and, and you're worried about fungal infection. So let's say you, you put them on uh, postconazole or Vori. Let's say postconazole, I think you mentioned, uh, was maybe your institutional standard. How do you deal with the, the, the ramp up? Because um, you, you, it's really hard to, to dose reduce any further than those first couple of days. So how do you deal with the ramp up? Do you, I've seen some people say, we just wait to start our azole until after we ramp up and then we decrease the dose further. How do you guys manage that? So we personally 
prefer to have the ASL on board beforehand. Um, just as a part of our standard, kind of take a step back to just you're diagnosing a new leukemia patient anyway, they're going to hit the hospital and they're probably here for, let's say, a week before we start therapy. So we probably already started the ASL unless we think we can't for one reason or the other. Um, and then we therefore would not ramp. We would just start at 100 milligrams of venetoclax and stay there. Um, we don't, in practice, do a modified ramp up off protocol. Now, I know other centers, as you mentioned, they don't do that. So looking at UNC specifically, I just you know saw a poster of theirs at HOPA this year discussing an outpatient venetoclax initiation um, and talking to them about their practice. They would do, as you mentioned, they would wait to initiate their azole antifungal until the patient's already been ramped up and about a week into therapy and then just adjust the dose down at that point. Um, but if you bring it back to what I would call the big three, the big um, trials, the Viali-A, RDAC-10 trial, and the Lodose RC trial, all three allowed for ASLs during ramp-up, and all three gave some a priori dose adjustments up front, um, depending on kind of the maximum dose. So I think that in that setting, it has been shown to be safe to be on the ASL at that time. Um, you just have to deal with kind of the different dosing forms. So, you know, is the Netoclox formulary at your institution? Do you have ready access to the 10 milligram tablets, 50 milligram tablets from an institutional supply perspective? Can you do that? Um, or are you going to have to ask a patient to pay for those tablets to do that? I think that's the gray area that people deal with, um, which is why, it, like I said, what our standard practice is just no ramp up, have the ASL on board up front, start at 100. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I think I've even heard some people, I don't know that I've heard anybody do this, but I've heard people suggest this is to do an echinocandin during the ramp up uh, instead of having no antifungal on board and then and then adding the POSA or VORI or whatever later and then dose reducing the venetoclax uh, from them. But it's it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that you got you to gotta plan for when you're going to initiate it. Because like you said, if like a lot of centers, like, like we would do is we would have the patient obtain their their own supply and you know then you're talking about uh, a couple maybe two different prescriptions or two different dosage forms and now you've got two different copays and that financial toxicity can really add up and then you throw in some outpatient postconazole afterwards uh and you can see how how devastating this can be financially for some folks yeah and i mean and we haven't even talked really about how officially the package label says for posa you're supposed to be doing 70 milligrams not even 50 so the data in the aml space I think take some of that into account, but if you're using a 70 milligram dose, that's actually two prescriptions, as I mentioned, it's the 10 milligram tablet and the 50 milligram tablet. So it'd be great if they could come out with a 70 milligram tablet for us or some sort of AML dose pack, so to speak. Um, but I don't know if that they're interested in that. I think they yeah. like the two copays. Yeah. And I think, I think it's really enlightening to hear you talk about your practices and how they uh, align or don't align maybe with the label for these two drugs. Cause it's, you know, it's a new space and everyone's learning uh, as we go. So I think it's really useful for somebody who has a lot of experience with this, like yourself and your institution, uh, to do as you've done here in this podcast and as your institution has done in publishing these results so we can all you know, learn from, from your experience and your expertise. Thanks. Well, well Kaylee, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, the folks uh, can follow you on Twitter at MarksK, uh, and I'll include that um, when I... Uh, when I tweet out the the link to this information, I'll tag you in it. Uh, any final any final thoughts on venetoclax? Anything we didn't cover that you think we really need to mention? No, I, I mean I think this was a, a good preamble, and I'm I'm sure I blabbered a lot about things that were probably more specific than needed for this podcast. But no, I mean I think I think venetoclax is an example where pharmacists 
really demonstrate their worth as far as their value to a patient and to the clinical team in, in the oncology space, just because, as you can hopefully hear, that the nuances behind dosing and, and therapy adjustments for these patients, it's, it, it takes a lot and it really takes an expert. And I think the pharmacists should establish themselves as the experts in the field and, and, and kind of use this to their advantage and, and start solidifying their, their space in oncology care. All right. Thank you so much, Kaylee. We will leave it there. Thank you. you.